Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 11, the book of Acts, chapter 4. We spent a uh, goodly portion of our previous lesson uh, in Acts creating a kind of a diagram to understand just who the various players were in our story, what their titles and positions meant, what the general social and religious condition of the Jewish people were that were living in the Holy Land. Now I spoke about rulers and chief priests and elders and the temple police and scribes and some other occupations. And we learned some of the fundamental beliefs and differences between the three mainstream social religious parties of that day called the Sadducees, Pharisees, and and the Essenes. And especially as concerns the issue of resurrection from the dead, which apparently was a controversial topic for the times. Now briefly, the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection of the dead, did not believe in any sort of an afterlife. The soul ended its existence at the same moment the body died. So what Peter and John were teaching at the temple about resurrection and claimed happened with their departed master Yeshua was instantly problematic because it flew in the face of what the high priest accepted as truth. The Pharisees did believe in resurrection. But in the sense that while the soul was immortal and it was eternal, upon the death of the body the soul departed the righteous uh, person and it passed into another body at some point sooner or later. But the souls of the wicked were bound up in eternity, in torment forever. The party of the essence also believed in resurrection from the dead in the form of the soul living on, but not necessarily the body being someday reanimated, nor the immortal soul being placed into a new and better body. So the future of the soul for them was to remain alive but disembodied. Of course, there were numerous other differences between those three parties besides the issue of resurrection from the dead. What is quite helpful to know, though, when studying the New Testament is this. The Sadducees were associated and connected to the institution of the temple and the priesthood. In fact, at this time, the high priests and the chief priests were all Sadducees. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were associated and connected to the synagogue system. And as I noted last week, it was the Pharisees who had created the concept of oral law, meaning a claim of of unwritten laws that were handed down from Moses. And the Pharisees were, for the most part, the creators of the traditions that in many ways heavily skewed the meaning of the law of Moses to make them reflect the views and beliefs of the Pharisees. 
Recall that Yeshua criticized the Pharisees for creating and imposing their traditions that at times countermanded, in his eyes, the Holy Scriptures. As in Matthew 15.1, he says this, There some Parshim Pharisees and Torah teachers from Yerushalayim came to Yeshua and asked him, Why is it that your Talmudim, your disciples, break the tradition of the elders? They don't do natiriyat yadiyim, that's ritual hand washing, before they eat. And he answered, Indeed, why do you break the commandment of God by your traditions? Hmm. The Sadducees generally agreed with Jesus on this issue of tradition. And they refused to accept the validity of anything but the historical written laws of Moses as recorded in the Torah. That is, they shunned tradition. Or as Yeshua referred to it, the traditions of the elders. Why? Because for the Sadducees, it was mostly because it was the rival Pharisees and the synagogue system that had created the oral tradition. So they weren't about to adopt that for themselves. Thus, since the synagogue and the temple were rival systems, each with their own separate authority structures, so were the Sadducees and the Pharisees rivals. The essence wanted no part of either the synagogue or the temple because they thought the temple priesthood thoroughly corrupt and the Pharisees pretty much wrong on their theology. Not much later, just one more generation after Peter, the Romans would destroy Jerusalem and the temple, meaning the priests were out of a job. Thus the Sadducees overnight became a relic as they lost their basis of power and authority, the temple and the priesthood. The Pharisees then became the rabbis of the synagogue system and it lived on. And tradition and oral Torah in time were written down into an authoritative work called the Mishnah, which itself turned into the source document for halakha, rabbinic law, that all Jews were expected to observe. Rabbis now ruled Judaism. Without opposition, without competition, except among themselves, of course. And it's that way to this day. Among the other social and government institutions of the Jews that we discussed was the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, if you would. Uh, it was this body that Peter and John were brought before to have their case examined. The high priest, by right of his position, was also the president of the Sanhedrin. So we see that while there were some Pharisees that sat on the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, starting with the high priest, actually controlled the court. So they more or less dictated the outcomes. The Sanhedrin was not a biblically ordained legal body. However, it was modeled after the system Moses used during the Exodus, at least as far as there being 70 elders to help govern um, 
plus Moses for a total of 71 individuals. It was their job to judge Israel. In fact, it seems that the institution of the Sanhedrin did not exist until after the Maccabean Rebellion of the 160s BC and its existence would terminate in 70 AD upon the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. In time it would be reborn but as a totally different kind of an institution. The Sanhedrin became the institution of chief rabbis who met to determine the new and growing body of Jewish law that goes by the names of tradition and halakha. And finally we discussed that although in Acts uh, 4-6 a fellow named Anas is called the high priest in fact he was not the currently sitting high priest rather it was his son-in-law Caiaphas. It is simply that during this era the job of high priest was no longer for life or was it even inherited. Instead it was appointed at this time by Rome based on bribes and commissions. Anas was a former high priest but he was also the patriarch of the current high priest family and all living ex high priests were allowed to retain the honorary title of high priest. So with that let's reread a portion of Acts chapter 4. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're going to start reading at verse 5 and go to the end. If you have a complete Jewish Bible it's page 1364. <clears throat> Acts 4 starting at verse 5. The next day, the people's rulers, elders, and Torah teachers assembled in Jerusalem, along with Anan, the Kohen Hagadol, the uh, high priest, Caiaphas, Yochanan, Alexander, and the other men from the family of the high priest. They had the emissaries stand before them and asked, By what power and what name did you do this? Then Kepha, Peter, filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being examined today about a good deed done for a disabled person, if you want to know how he was restored to health, then let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that's in the name of the Messiah, Yeshua from Nazareth, whom you had executed on a stake as a criminal, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you perfectly healed. This Yeshua is the stone rejected by you builders which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by whom we must be saved. When they saw how bold Kepha and Yochanan were, even though they were untrained Amharits, they were amazed. Also they recognized them as having been with Yeshua. Moreover, since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there beside them, there was nothing they could say to discredit the healing. 
So they told them to step away from the Sanhedrin while they discussed this matter privately. What can we do to these men, they asked each other. Why, anyone in Jerusalem can see that a remarkable miracle has come about through them. We can't possibly deny that. But to prevent it from spreading any further among the people, let's warn them not to speak any more to anyone in this name. So they called them in again. They ordered them under no circumstances to speak or teach in the name of Yeshua. But Kepha and Yochanan, as Peter and John, answered, You must judge whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God. As for us, we can't help but talking about what we've actually seen and heard. They threatened them some more, but finally let them go. They couldn't punish them because of the people. For everyone was praising God over what had happened, since the man who had been miraculously healed was more than 40 years old. Upon being released, they went back to their friends. They reported what the head priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they raised their voices to God with a singleness of heart. Master, they prayed, you made heaven and the earth and the sea, everything in them. And by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, you said, Why do the nations rage the peoples devise useless plans? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers assembled together against Adonai and against his Messiah. This has come true in this city. Since Herod and Pontius Pilate with Goyim, the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, all assembled against your holy servant Yeshua, whom you made Messiah, to do what your power and plan had already determined beforehand should happen. So now, Lord, take note of their threats. Enable your slaves to speak your message with boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal, to do signs and miracles through the name of your holy servant, Yeshua. And while they were still praying, the place where they were gathered was shaken. They were all filled with the Ruach HaKodesh. They spoke God's message with boldness. All the many believers were one in heart and soul. No one claimed any of his possessions for himself, but everyone shared everything he had. With great power, the emissaries continued testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Yeshua. And they were all held in high regard. No one among them was poor, since those who owned lands or houses sold them. and They turned over the proceeds to the emissaries to distribute to each according to his need. Thus, Yosef, whom the emissaries called Barnabah, which means the exhorter, a Levite, a native of Cyprus sold a field which belonged to him and he brought the money to the emissaries. So Peter and John were jailed overnight. Then they appeared before the Sanhedrin. And the question the two disciples were asked was by what power, by what name did you do this? Now, note that the court didn't in any way dispute what happened. This cripple was healed. It was a miracle. But done in whose power? In whose name? So the outcome wasn't an issue. It was the theology that seemed to matter to the Sadducees. And to the minds of the Jews, you see, the healing of an individual was inherently something beyond the natural power of a human being. Thus, the Sanhedrin wanted to know if this particular healing had been sorcery, maybe even blasphemy, that is, the healing done in the name of a false god. See, recall 
that Yeshua was accused at one point of performing miracles by the power of Beelzebub, the devil. But Peter, with the power of the Holy Spirit, he had an answer for them. When we're told that Peter was filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, it doesn't mean he was just now indwelt with the Holy Spirit or that he received more of the Holy Spirit than he received a few days earlier at Pentecost. See, this won't be the only time that we'll hear of a disciple make a speech and then we're told that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. It only means that this believer was given special divine inspiration for what he was about to say or to do. I'm certain that Peter remembered and he was comforted by these words of his master. And so he fully expected to be filled up with the Holy Spirit Spirit at the appropriate moment. In Matthew 10, 18-20, Yeshua said these words, On my account you will be brought before governors and kings as a testimony to them and to the Goyim, to the Gentiles. But when they bring you to trial, don't worry about what to say, how to say it. When the time comes, you will be given what you should say. For it will not be just you speaking, but it will be the Spirit of your Heavenly Father speaking through you. Now I want to comment on that statement of Jesus for just a moment. Yeshua is not saying that His disciples, the original twelve, or or us, should ignore preparation when we're given an opportunity to speak God's Word or to, to speak about the good news and witness of Him. This is not a call for us to just wing it. The twelve disciples to whom He was speaking were with Yeshua day and night. So they were constantly being taught about the Holy Scriptures from the mouth of God Himself. They were in as intense a teaching environment for as much as three years that we can scarcely imagine. And as we see here in Acts and throughout the New Testament, these men who had no special higher learning, all higher learning among the Jews was only religious education. They could quote scripture beautifully and in the proper context. They weren't merely good memorizers. And so they could speak Bible passages the way a parrot can mimic but not know the substance of what it's saying. Rather, the disciples were able to discern sufficiently to understand how to properly apply the appropriate passages to the appropriate circumstances. The disciples didn't have the luxury of of carrying Bibles around or refer to it as we do. Yeshua didn't have a Tanakh. He didn't have scripture scrolls to teach his students from, except occasionally perhaps in the synagogue when he taught there. Memory and practice, much time and effort, that was needed to be able to remember and pull up those divine words when called upon. Now I've taught you for many years 
that upon coming to salvation, the next step must be immersion in water to be baptized. But immediately after that is to be immersed into God's Word. Immersed into God's Word. Otherwise, all we'll know is what others tell us. And often that amounts to bumper sticker sayings or or doctrines that might well be true, but sometimes they're not. But they come without an underlying foundation for understanding what we've heard or how to apply it to our lives. These twelve disciples who were often accused of being common amharets, a term that literally means the people of the land, but in Christ's day, it was used as a, in, a, in a derogatory way to indicate people of little wit or systematic education. Yet these ordinary men could confound and intelligently respond to kings, even Torah teachers, under the most stressful of circumstances. It was because, first of all, they knew God's Word, but also because they had the Holy Spirit to guide them. Now, I have heard about many of you who have confounded and startled pastors and rabbis and friends and family with your answers to their questions or statements about your faith or about biblical doctrines. Some of you have told me that when you're responding, you can't believe sometimes what's coming out of your mouth. And what startles your audience is that most of you have never gone to seminary or, or, or to Bible college. But you have diligently studied God's Word. And with the Ruach HaKodesh as your teacher, you know the unfiltered truth. There can be no higher education than that. So don't you ever think that you are unqualified to challenge religious authorities when they have it wrong. I can only imagine the dumbfounded expressions on the faces of the members of the Sanhedrin as Peter began to speak under divine inspiration. Boy, I'd like to have been there. See, immediately, he questioned their motives for questioning him. He says, you know, if we're being examined today for a good deed done to a disabled person, In other words, he's saying, well, assuming your motive to have us before you is actually to understand how this healing took place, then he says, I have a direct answer for you. And he goes on to say that he wants them and all Israel to know that it was done in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, Yeshua of Nazareth, who was Israel's Messiah. And man, they knew exactly who Peter was talking about. And it conjured up their worst fears. Why? Because they had hoped that a few weeks earlier, after they had managed to get the Romans to execute this Jesus for them, that yet another threat to their power and authority would finally have been eliminated. But instead, now appears now appears they'd created a martyr. The follows 
followers of this martyr were, were bold. They were fearless. And this huge crowd that had heard and believed Peter that night before was evidence enough that this Yeshua movement was alive and it was well and it was growing even though the founder was dead and gone. But after answering their question about whose name and power this healing happened, Peter can't, well, he just can't stand to leave Wolof alone. He goes on to say to the high priest and to the 70 most powerful Jewish officials in the land, you executed this Yeshua on a stake as a criminal, but God raised him up from the dead. And now as a result of the power of this Yeshua, this cripple is healed. Ooh, yikes. This was no polite oratory by Peter. He instantly went for the jugular. Peter, who is supposed to be on the witness stand to defend himself, has gone on the offensive. And he's telling the Sanhedrin that what they did to Yeshua was obviously against God's will. And you know why he knows that? Because God undid it. Peter now has their attention. So he preaches the gospel of Christ that begins by using Psalm 118. Now Psalm 118 was well known for reasons we're going to talk about in a few minutes. But first I want to point out something that frankly I just delight in bringing up every chance I get. You see, the gospel of salvation was given to mankind in the Old Testament, not in the New. Yeshua taught the gospel from the Old Testament. The disciples taught the gospels to their fellow Jew, taught the gospel to their fellow Jews from the Old Testament. The apostle Paul taught the gospel to the Gentiles from the Old Testament. Every scripture passage that the disciples and the apostles and Christ himself quoted was from the Old Testament. And that's because there would be no such thing as a New Testament for nearly two centuries after Christ's passion on the cross. So when people question the relevance of the Old Testament for modern day believers, and that salvation is of the New Testament, not the Old, you might want to point this out. Now, I'm of course in no way disparaging the latter part of our Bibles, the New Testament, or am I lessening its irreplaceable value or, or inspiration. However, for a very long time, there's been a great effort in some of our Christian institutions, none more so than in the 21st century, to separate the Old from the New, making the, the Old almost a separate issue, if not a separate book from the New with each testament designated as pertinent to different people groups. One for the Jews, the other one for Christian Gentiles. Now, although we'll find some of the early church fathers holding to this view, this was by no means unanimous. See, I, I think it's really instructional to include the early church fathers' comments in any discussion of the New Testament. Here is what the Venerable Beatty, also known as Saint Beatty, said in the early 700s A.D. 
about the issue of the two testaments, the old and the new, as well as the two peoples of the earth, Jews and Gentiles, in relation to one another. This excerpt I'm going to read to you from is taken from his commentary on the book of Acts of the Apostles as he speaks specifically about Acts chapter 4 and Peter's Psalm 118 quote. He says this, The builders were the Jews while all the Gentiles remained in the wasteland of idols. The Jews alone were daily reading the law and the prophets for the building up of the people. And as they were building, they came to the cornerstone, which embraces two walls. That is, they found in the prophetic scriptures that Christ, who would bring together in himself two peoples, was to come in the flesh. And because they preferred to remain in one wall, that is, to be saved alone, they rejected the stone, which was not one-sided but two-sided. Nevertheless, although they were unwilling, God by himself placed this stone at the chief position in the corner so that from the two testaments and from the two peoples there might rise up a building of one and the same faith. Isn't that a great quote? Very wise, profound words from Beatty. Psalm 118 is part of what is known as the Hallel in Jewish tradition, which consists of Psalms 113 through 118. It's part, it's a key part of Jewish synagogue liturgy. And Psalm 118 begins like this. Don't open your Bible, so I'm just going to read you a few excerpts. Begins like this, starting in verse 1. Give thanks to Adonai, for he is good, for his grace continues forever. Now let Israel say, His grace continues forever. Now let the house of Aaron say, His grace continues forever. Let those who fear Adonai say, His grace continues forever. Moving down to verse 14. Yah, God, is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Moving down further to verse 22. The very rock that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. See, this is agreed by Jews and Christians as a messianic psalm. And we find the use of the rock or the stone as a metaphor for and a reference to Messiah. Yeshua used it of himself, as we find in the book of Mark. Naturally, when he used it, it was clear to all those around him that he was saying, he's the rock and the cornerstone from Psalm 118. Listen to Yeshua speak in Mark chapter 12, verses 10 through 12. Haven't you read the passage in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, that says, the very rock which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This has come about from Adonai, and in our eyes it's amazing. They set about to arrest him, for they recognized that he had told that parable with reference to themselves, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So Peter's use of the rock which the builders rejected, referring to Yeshua, was both accurate and inflammatory. Because if we had read and continued on in, 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 in Mark, we would have seen that when Jesus spoke these words, or rather, if we move back up to Mark 11, the end of Mark 11 rather, we would have seen that when Jesus spoke these words, guess where he was? He was in the temple courts. He was in the province of the Sadducees when he was saying this. 
So the they that were about to arrest Yeshua for saying he's the rock and the cornerstone, it was the Sadducees. Now Peter stands before these very same people and he uses the same messianic verse in the same context pronouncing the same man, Yeshua, as the stone the builders rejected. But he also indicts the Sadducees as the builders who did the rejecting. But then comes verse 12, which to me is one of the most powerful, not only in Acts, but in the entire New Testament. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by whom we must be saved. Pretty definitive. For millions of believers like me, this statement is a non-negotiable foundational principle of our faith. Now how at any point in history that a believer could create or adopt the two covenant or dual covenant theology that Jews are saved by the law and Gentiles are saved by Christ is beyond me. And believe me, many well-known pastors, names that would surprise you, many well-known pastors and rabbis and Bible teachers who love Israel that are at the forefront of fighting anti-Semitism have adopted this so-called two-covenant theology that says the Jews have a different path to salvation than Gentiles. They may deny the label, but at the same time, they teach there's no need for the Jews to accept Yeshua as their Savior. The law of Moses has redeemed them. Yet to whom was Peter speaking when he uttered these immutable words. He was standing in the court of the Sanhedrin on the Temple Mount speaking in closed session only to Sadducees and Pharisees. Not a single Gentile heard those words. Not one. So the irony is thick. Peter told the Jews that Yeshua is the only name who says, but today, many Gentile Christians say His words don't apply to the Jews, only to Gentiles. Go figure. In Acts 4.13, the first reaction of the members of the Sanhedrin was surprise that these presumably uneducated men could speak with such gravitas and authority. Their accents and their dress gave them away that they were simple Galileans. And they also remembered that these two, Peter and John, were constant companions with Yeshua, who of course was also a Galilean. Rabban Gamaliel II, some years after the destruction of, of Jerusalem in 70 AD, said these recorded words that gives us a good idea of how the learned Jews looked at common Jews. He said, an uncultured person is not sin-fearing. And neither is an ignorant person, what he really said was an amheretz, pious. So while the members of the Sanhedrin were kind of boxed in by the unexpectedly wise and inspired words of, of, of Peter, a mere fisherman, 
they still gave them no respect. At the same time, what with this formerly crippled man standing right there next to the disciples, what was the Sanhedrin to do? In verse 16 in private conference, the Sanhedrin admits that a notable sign, that is a miracle, had been performed through Peter and John. There's nothing illegal about that. Nothing they could do. It's fascinating. The leaders of the Jewish religious establishment have no interest in the fact that an otherwise permanently disabled man since birth has regained full use of his body due to a miracle from God. No interest. Their only agenda is how might this affect their personal status and authority? In verse 17, they go so far as to try to squelch this from spreading. Imagine, the leaders of the religion of the Jews are trying to figure out how to stop any more people from getting healed in the name of Yeshua because they didn't authorize it, they don't control it, so they don't get any credit for it. Any good politician can perfectly understand their thinking. So the only course of action the Sanhedrin could take was to threaten these disciples never to do it again with some unnamed consequences if they did so. But especially they say that Peter and John are never to speak to anyone again in this name, meaning Yeshua. Now of course, Peter and John will have none of it, so in no time they'll again be arrested. Matter of fact, we're going to find that in the next chapter of Acts. But their second arrest is not going to go as easy for them because of the way Jewish law was administered at this time. See, Jewish laws in those days held that ignorance of the law was indeed a good excuse. Saying, I didn't know I was doing wrong or I wasn't aware of the law was generally seen as a legitimate defense. This is even reflected in Peter's earlier statement back in Acts chapter 3, verse 17, when Peter says to the crowd, you'll remember this, Now brothers, I know you didn't understand the significance of what you were doing, and neither did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had announced in advance when he spoke through all the prophets, namely that his Messiah was to die. Therefore repent, turn to God, so that your sins may be erased. See, if the court felt that the accused person was telling the truth and had good reason to perhaps not know the law or even understand the ramifications of what they were doing, then the person was let off with a warning and given some education in the, in the law. So since the Jewish public fully understood this legal principle... Then Peter was telling the crowd that their ignorance of what they had done was a reasonable defense. However, now because he's told them, they understand what they did. And who this man was that they had conspired to kill, Jesus the Christ. So, they must now cleanse their hearts. They must never do it again, so to speak. And they could do this only 
by repenting. Now in Peter and John's case, they had broken no law, but the Sanhedrin essentially made new law when they were told they could no longer speak about this Yeshua. So once again, so once an arrested and and an arrested and a released person was informed now of the law, if that person was arrested again for the same offense, then there could be no more excuses. Thus, because the Sanhedrin warned Peter not to heal or speak in the name of Yeshua again, when they did so, they were arrested and they were in a lot more hot water than they were the first time. Because now the law stood on the side of the Sanhedrin because the accused weren't ignorant of the law. They broke it deliberately. Well, in verse 23... Peter and John were released. Immediately, they went to their fellow believers with the news. They told them about what happened to them. And when the believers heard this, rejoicing broke out as they praised God for His protection and His deliverance. Their communal prayer began by quoting a passage from Psalm 146, then moved in to quoting Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. Let's read Psalm 2 together. As then we're going to have a better idea of what the believers had in mind as they prayed this to the Father. So turn your Bibles to Psalm 2. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that is page 791. Psalm 2. We're going to read it all. Follow along with me, please. Why are the nations in an uproar? The people's grumbling in vain. The earth's kings are taking positions, leaders conspiring together against Adonai and his anointed. They cry, let's break their fetters. Let's throw off their chains. He who sits in heaven laughs. Adonai looks at them in derision. Then in his anger he rebukes them terrifies them in his fury. I myself have installed my king on Zion, Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the decree. Adonai said to me, You are my son. Today I became your father. Ask of me. I will make the nations your inheritance. The whole wide world will be your possession. You will break them with an iron rod, shatter them like a clay pot. Therefore, kings, be wise. Be warned, you judges on the earth. Serve Adonai with fear. Rejoice, but with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry. And you perish along the way. When, he suddenly, when suddenly his anger blazes, how blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Yeah, hallelujah is right. This is obviously another messianic psalm that refers to Yeshua. There is a Hebrew study principle called Pesher. Now Pesher is an interpretation of the Bible when the Bible verses are applied to current events. And often the Bible verses we read are prophetic. So it is a 
a so-called Pesher interpretation when we look at biblically prophesied events and try to connect them to things that are happening all around us. Now I want to point out a short phrase in this passage that speaks, that to me speaks um, not of Yeshua's first coming, but of his second. And the words are in um, verse 9 of Psalm 2. It says, You will break them with an iron rod. You will shatter them like a clay pot. See, in the book of Revelation, we read in a letter in Revelation chapter 2 from Messiah to the church. And in that letter we are told that of the manner in which the millennial kingdom, the kingdom of God on earth with Christ our King is going to be ruled. In Revelation 2, 26 and 27 we read this. To him who wins the victory and does what I want until the goal is reached, I'll give him authority over the nations. He will rule them with a staff staff of iron and he will dash them to pieces like pottery. So here we have a direct connection between Psalm 2 and Revelation 2. What was prophesied in Psalm 2 will happen in Revelation 2. Beatty was so very right. The rock that is the cornerstone connects two walls. The Old Testament and the New Testament. The Jews and the Gentiles. We will finish up chapter 4 next week.